Hello everyone and welcome to The Laws of Stan. I'm Stanley Rappaport, your host for this show dedicated to shedding light on the various applications of mathematics in the industry. As you know, the goal of this podcast revolves around exploring the usefulness of the mathematical language in different areas of the economy. Indeed, we often know that some jobs and professions heavily rely on mathematics, but we may struggle to understand in what sense. So if mathematics scares you, and if you think this interview is not suitable for you, don't worry, we'll take it step by step. In today's seventh episode, we will delve into the applications of mathematics in the venture capital industry and explore how top-tier early-stage venture capitalists operate and make decisions under uncertainty. This episode holds a special significance as we will shift our focus away from the specific mathematical algorithms involved in the industry, placing more emphasis on, how understand, on understanding how the most uh, crucial machine, namely the human brain, makes the decisions amidst uncertainty. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today, Salomon Ayash, early stage tech investor and co-founder and general partner of Origins, a VC fund that he co-founded with world champion Blaise Matuidi. Please join me in welcoming him to the discussion. Very happy to have you today, Solomon. How are you feeling? Very good, Stan. Thank you for having me. So without further ado, could you please begin by introducing yourself and providing some insight into your background? Could you share some details about your educational background, prior employment and uh, previous experiences for our listeners? For sure, for sure. And first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, you cold reached out on, on LinkedIn and I thought that was really bold. And then when I looked, I saw that you were quite young and there's nothing more than I love than like younger people that are hungry and want to do big things. So it was, it's an honor for me to, to get invited. And especially when I was looking at the, at the other episodes, you were mostly speaking about math. Um, and I'm glad to be kind of like the first guest speaking about how that applied to, to venture capital in general. So, um, without further ado, just in terms of intro. So as you said, Salman, I co-founded, I'm general partner at Origins. It's a, it's a fund that I co-founded with, uh, Blaise and, uh, and Ilan, uh, a good friend of mine. It's three of us. We've started this fund because we wanted to bring something that was completely new to venture capital. Um, what's super unique about origins is today we invest approximately half a million dollar checks in companies but a lot of our lps and i'm sure we'll come back to this a lot of our lps are celebrities um more on on my personal background and then we'll dig a little bit further in origins after prior to origins i was the head of france of a german fund big european fund with two billion assets under management called early bird prior to that i was at facebook for a few years and then I lived in the U.S. for 10 years where I worked at Goldman for a few, Goldman Sachs for a few years in New York, did some strategy consulting. And then prior to that, I went to school in Boston. So I would say very much dual citizen, born in, born in the U.S., grew up in Paris, studied and worked, uh, and worked in the U.S. and now happily back in France. So again, thanks a lot for uh, accepting this invite uh, after this cold reach, as you mentioned. And can you just clarify the term LP for us? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the way a VC fund works is basically you're responsible to invest money on behalf of other people in startups. Um, so 
LPs, which is basically limited partners, give money to GPs. GPs are general partners, so I'm a general partner, and then we invest in startup. And an LP could be either an individual, high net worth individual that maybe had a successful exit and made some money. It could be a family office, so a single or multifamily office. It can be a pension fund, can be a corporate. So you have really different form of LPs, but basically LPs, whether it's private equity or venture capital, it's basically the person that gives you the money and gives the money to the GP uh, for the GP to basically deploy and invest in companies. How did you find yourself in this unique industry and what paths can one take to become a venture capitalist in this current overwhelming startup ecosystem? Uh, was it something that you always aspired to do as a child or maybe uh, uh, younger in your uh, career? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's really funny because um, I don't think I even knew what venture capital was until a few years back, right? It's not like I went to school at 18 and I say, hey, I want to become an investor. I think that desire when I was a kid, it's, I wanted to be in banking and I wanted to work for some of the biggest companies in the world, which I had the, the humbled honor to do. But I think as I grew in my career, I was looking at all those headlines in newspaper of company A raising millions of dollars and company B raising billions of dollars. And I was always wondering, where is that money coming from? And as I grew, you realize that this entire system of venture capital existed, which was, I think, much closer to my DNA than just traditional private equity. And, uh, and you know, you, you start to wonder what does it take? And like everyone else, I studied and then I met some VCs, which pretty much all of them rejected me when I was looking for a job because I didn't have the network. Um, and slowly, slowly worked kind of like my way to, to, I would say, be in the tech ecosystem. And I did that through Goldman Sachs. Uh, when I started in banking, then moved to the fintech arm of government that was called Marcus. So I would say that was my first exposure to tech in general. Then after that, when you work for Facebook, I would say you're getting closer to the real tech ecosystem because you're completely with the Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix of the world. And then after that, when you move to VC, you're getting closer. So I kind of built my career from bigger companies within those bigger companies to be as close as possible to whatever startups and, and VCs were doing. You started an explanation earlier, but uh, could you explain what venture capital is, like what it actually is, and what's your view on the industry currently? Uh, like what's yeah. your view on the evolution of the industry? Do you think it's the right time to join it or is it already uh, overwhelmed, overpacked or uh, saturated? Yeah, so it's a really cool question. Um, and I'm, I'm at the same time Googling, there's an amazing book uh, that I love called The Power Law. Uh, it's venture capital. Uh, so the book is called, uh, sorry, I'll get there. I'm going to give it to you in a second because I'm looking it up online. But basically, uh, it's The Power Law of Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. And it's a book that basically goes back to the history of venture capital and how we started in, in, in the Silicon Valley. And basically, ultimately, venture capital is... Um, the possibility to create innovation, if I had to summarize it in really three words. It's basically you're giving the possibility for newcomers to basically 
create disruptive technologies. How do you do that? You basically finance them. And that's when venture capital was created. And it's basically the possibility to say that to push boundaries and to create really disruptive technologies, you need to to take amazing talent, finance them really, really well, and help them grow. And in order to do that, you're basically going to give them money so that they can start a company, create the company, create a product, launch a product, and scale the product. And that money comes from venture capital. And as I said earlier, the venture capital is basically deploying money that LPs gave to him. So if I had to compare it to private equity, what private equity does, so I would say much later stages companies, uh, venture capital does it to much earlier companies, right? So uh, private equity is going to take a mature business with sometimes dozens of hundreds of millions of revenues and early stage. And for this entire conversation, I'm only going to focus on early stage venture capital, not talking about growth at all, but early stage venture capital, we basically more betting on people and opportunities than actual revenue, because for most of the time, there are no revenues. We, we introduced you as uh, the general partner of Origins. So um, could you explain to our listeners how your fund operates and delve deeper into Origins investment thesis. You just mentioned uh, early stage investments. So could you provide some insight into, into your current activities? Yeah, for sure. So we invest half a million dollar check basically in companies from pre-seed to series A. I would say our real DNA is pre-seed to seed, which means most of founders come to us. They only have a team. Sometimes there's some sort of MVP and minimum viable product. Um, and very, very rarely do they have revenue. So we really like to invest super early in companies. Um, and our funds operate, I would say, like every other early stage funds, which means people gave us money um, and we take that money and we invest in companies. Today, we have 13 companies that we invested in. Uh, and we still have money on the first fund to deploy in even more companies. And in terms of our thesis, uh, so I would say we're a consumer fund ultimately, but I don't want us to be seen as a B2C fund. What we try to do is basically invest in companies where the end user is Mr. and Mrs. Everybody. And that's kind of how we look at products, right? We say, for example, Notion, Notion it could be a B2B SaaS business, but ultimately it's being used by you, by me, by my sister. And the end user of Notion or Airtable is Mr. and Mrs. Everybody. So that's how we look at, at consumer origins. And the reason why we look at it that way is because a lot of our LPs are celebrities. And every time we invest in the companies, those celebrities will speak about the companies online to basically bring awareness and help drive some growth. The end consumer is basically the mass market, then it's much easier to drive that kind of that kind of engagement. So as we know, the, the startup ecosystem is uh, heavily reliant on technology. Um, so is it therefore a, a prerequisite to possess a natural aptitude for numbers and an understanding of the um, underlying mathematical and technological aspects to excel in the game? Um, to summarize my question, I would say, do you believe that proficiency in mathematics, uh, statistics, and the quantitative uh, fields correlates with better performance in investing when it comes to VC or private equity? Yeah, I would say so. 
It's a really good question. And I get that question a lot in terms of like, how good do I need to be in finance to be able to be a good investor? And I think that's basically what you're asking. And, and it really, so I'm going to split it in three parts. If you want to do private equity, you need to be excellent uh, because it's all about numbers. If you want to do a, be a growth inv investor in terms of venture capital and you have, so, you have incredible firms like Iconic and some other growth funds, you are getting a lot closer to private equity and to investment banking in terms of the need for uh, proficiency in mathematics or stats. When you look at early stage investments, it's completely fine if you only have the basics, meaning you're able to do some calculations, you're able to look at market sizing, you're able to look at some dilution, et cetera, et cetera. You don't need to have gone through years and years of, of, of banking. Um, so I'm more into early stage and that's why I would say I'm obviously I'll obviously use math all day and make calculations all day and I'll come back to you on some examples. But ultimately, I do it more at the fund level, but not necessarily to make investments. As I said, we invest very, very early in companies and most of our investments are purely driven by thesis that we have or guts that we have or what we've seen in the market or founder market fit, right? They're really driven by some sort of calculation that we've done in an Excel spreadsheet. So um, moving to another subject, what is your perspective on the industry at the moment, uh, given the prevalence of powerful algorithms and artificial intelligence? Do you think that venture capital offers a hope in an industry that cannot be dominated by machines, even though probably the, the startups you're investing in um, have a plus when they use uh, AI and uh, Uh, powerful algorithms. So how, how do we look at artificial intelligence? So I think you have, you have, if I had to summarize the game of venture in basically five parts, what we do, we do basically five things. And that's what I tell the team all the time. The first thing that we do is we look for LPs and we look for investors, right? Because LPs are going to invest in the first fund. And then you are going to deploy that first fund, but ultimately you need to raise a second fund. So we look for LPs. The second thing that we do is we look for deals. The third thing that we do is we do deals. We try to get into the best deals that we can. The fourth thing that we do is we help our portfolio companies. And I would say the fifth thing is much more marketing driven. We write thesis, we do podcasts like this to basically create awareness around what we do. So when I look at those five activities and The question is, how can AI change the world of venture and, and what could happen? So when you look at finding LPs, there's actually this really cool newsletter that I recommend to everyone called uh, Data Driven, wrote by an ex-colleague of mine that I really admire, Andre, that basically look at exactly that problem, which is how can we use AI to basically either source for better opportunities or make better decisions when making investments. And I think on the first one is you could really see, for example, and I'm just going to give you a few examples here, you could see AI basically being used and say, hey, can you scrap this, the entire uh, registration, any company that was basically registered in the past 60 days and look for who registered those companies, 
which field are they in? And did one of the co-founders of the co-creators of the registered company work at a top 10 Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we could see AI basically helping a lot on the sourcing of companies. We could see AI sourcing on the LPs of companies, right? I think there are dozens and hundreds of thousands of LPs around the world. If tomorrow I'm taking a trip to Sweden, it would take me days and weeks to basically compile the entire list of people that could potentially invest in my fund as LPs. But ultimately, I could really see a world where I could just ask AI that question. So at the end of the day, you, you don't think that um, AI will replace humans in uh, the venture capital industry, let's say? Yeah, so, so I think, and that's basically the conclusion of my answer, is I think for a lot of the heavy-duty work, AI could replace it, and I would say could make our job easier. In early-stage investment, a lot of our decision is really often driven by what our guts are telling us. I know this is like anti-math and anti-stats, but we don't know what we don't know, and we know what we know. But ultimately, you need to feel that you're super comfortable with what you don't know. And I think AI would never be able to replace that gut feeling, meaning AI would be able to source that company bring you the founders, tell you we registered a company that is playing in a really, really cool market and the mar make all the calculation about the market he's playing with. But ultimately, it would be impossible for AI to tell me what I feel when I meet that founder. And do I feel grit? Do I feel mental toughness? Do I feel like resilience and wanting to change the world? And I think all of those human characteristics, which defines, I would say, early stage investments, we're not going to be able to to tell them with AI, and that's why I think AI will never replace humans in general. Uh, that's a, that's very interesting. I, I, I agree with you. But let's now delve into the uh, a mathematical breakdown of your job. Even though uh, you, you said it earlier, um, it, it's it's not maths and stats, but um, let's try to get a grasp on how mathematics, statistics, and probabilities play a key role in your profession. So in your daily job or within your organization origin, um, are you using evaluation models to assess the worth of early stage startups, even though it's difficult uh, conducting, let's say, um, discounted cash flow analysis, uh, comparable company analysis, and um, precedent transaction analysis? Do these models uh, involve complex mathematical cal calculations to estimate the present and future value of a startup? Yeah, so, so again, given that this podcast is a lot more focused on early stage investments, we don't use any of those, of those tools. I think we look at really three or four parameters when we make investments. We look at the team and we want an excellent team that is uh, what I call team market fit. They've done, you know, if they worked in e-commerce, I don't want them to build a, a cybersecurity company, for example, right? You need to see some sort of team excellent product. Ultimately, we're a consumer investors. So we want incredible team, incredible product. We want the market size to be big enough uh, to return the fund. I'll come back to the power law of, of venture. Uh, few outliers basically return to you the entire fund. But basically, those are the three big things that we look at. And it's so early that we just don't make discounted cash flow or, or comparable company analysis. We ultimately sometimes I would say look at comparables when we're thinking about exit um, and look a lot at the business plan in terms of how much cash would this company need 
to basically take it to the next stage of growth. And if we invest in seed for that company to basically be able to raise in series A, but other than that, I would say it's kind of like the only tools that we use. So let's say that being an early stage venture capitalist uh, requires more psychological analyt uh, analytical skills. Yeah, you could you could see it that way. I think I, I think you have. Uh, I like to summarize it. You have basically three ways to invest in early stage, and I'm about, I'm writing a blog about this. You have either you're a completely generalist, and you say I want to invest in incredible founders, regardless of what they build. And that's one way to do it. I want to take basically incredible, super smart, talented humans that are building incredible companies in huge markets, period. And you basically do checks. You have a second way to invest, which is in you can be um, sector focused and say, I only invest in fintech. And that's basically what you're going to do. You're going to take one vertical, which is fintech and only invest in, in fintech company. And I think the, the third way to invest is basically to be, uh, to be thesis driven. And you take one thesis and you invest within that thesis. So you could say, for example, not only do I do fintech, but I want, I think there is, uh, I'm looking some, uh, one of the most popular fund in terms of thesis is Union Square Venture. And for example, I'm reading from their website, their thesis now is they want to invest in companies that enable trusted brands that broaden access to knowledge, capital, and well-being by leveraging networks, platform, and protocols. And basically, that's the thesis that they have. Five years ago, they had another thesis. They look for less obvious network effect, infrastructure for the new economy, and enabler of open decentralized data. And if you look at all the investment that they've made within that thesis, They invested in Carta, they invested in Coinbase, in Mongo, in Twilio, in Meetup. And basically all those companies, they were, some of them were fintech, some of them were crypto, some of them were basically, I don't know, Meetup, we can say social, but they all were around that thesis where they were looking for network effect, infrastructure for the new economy. And I would say those are like the three ways to basically invest. So as to summarize, you're generalist, and you only bet on people, you are industry-driven, or you are thesis-driven. So in, in early stage, even though you don't really analyze the, the major corporate indicators, when it comes to smaller financial metrics um, that we call KPIs, um, are you relying on mathematical tools to assess the health and potential success of a startup, uh, like uh, revenue growth rates, uh, customer acquisition costs, and some of those Uh, market analysis uh, KPIs? Yeah, so um, we can talk about we can talk about consumer, right? So we're a consumer fund. So we look at some of the typical KPIs when it comes to when it comes to consumer. We're going to look at what we call engagement, right? And basically we engagement is basically how often are the users engaging with your product? And then we're going to look at some engagement ratios. The most popular one is DAU over MAU, daily active users over monthly active users, which basically will tell me out of my monthly active users, how many of those people are coming back on the app every day. So that's kind of like 
my engagement KPIs, and the higher the number is, the better it is. And for example, great engagement is 50%, which means out of your total monthly active users, if I have a thousand monthly active users, if 500 of those are coming every day, I have an amazing, amazing app. Um, I'm going to look obviously at other ratios like retention, which is people that, um, it's basically whenever people come on 1st of January, how many of those people are still here on the 30th of March, which is three months later, right? And for example, we're going to look at retention at the first day. We're going to look at retention on day seven, which means people that installed the app on the first day, how many of them are still here on the seventh day and are still opening the app? And we're going to look at day 30 retention. So all those KPIs that I would say are super classic in consumer, it's it's basically KPIs that we look at before making an investment. So despite the fact that you don't really rely on uh, powerful algorithms to conduct investments, uh, I guess you stop, you sometimes have to uh, minimize your overall portfolio risks. Uh, so when it comes to assessing the potential risks and returns of an investment, do you rely on quantitative methods to make decisions on when, if, and how much to invest in a company? Yeah, so, so you know, the game of venture is you have a diversified, you need to build a diversified venture portfolio, right? So I need to make as many bets as possible, as many smart bets as possible, and ultimately one of those bets will hope that one or two or three of those bets will work out. It's a numbers game, right? So when I make a bet in a company, and I, I don't want to get too mathematical because we need a paper and a pen, but I need to take enough ownership within the company so that that company alone can return me the fund. Example, if I have a $50 million venture capital fund, right? And I invest in a company and ultimately the company sells for $1 billion, I need to have at least 5% of that company to return my $50 million to my investors, right? So investing is just not enough. Not only do you need to invest in a company, but you need to make sure you have enough shareholding in the company to return the fund. And that's kind of like when we make investments, we look at, hey, do we have enough shareholding? Do we own enough of the company to return the fund if we had a what is the biggest upside that we could have? And for example, we are never going to do a deal where our upside is, for example, 200 or $300 million. What I mean by upside is how big can the company become? For example, if a company was only operating in France in a very niche market and couldn't expand internationally, it's something that we wouldn't like because it wouldn't get big enough for us to return the fund. And that's how we look at, at basically diversifying the company, the, the portfolio, meaning we always look for have enough ownership, but also really possible outliers. I have a, a kind of a naive and very simplest question, and I hope you'll understand what, what I'm meaning by this. But would you say that early stage venture capital is more similar to to poker than finance? It's a it's a really really it's a really good question. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to ask my dad, like, but when you buy stocks online, aren't you just gambling? You don't know if the stock is going to go up or if it's going to go down. Like, what do you know? And, and 
the game of early stage investment absolutely has an element of luck, whatever you want to call it, luck, blessing, poker, absolutely has an element of luck. But ultimately, your job is to make that element of luck as small of a percentage as possible in your decision-making elements. So, said otherwise, said otherwise, when you invest in a company, you if you've built a thesis and you've you've come up to a conclusion that uh, there's something happening, I don't know, in like uh, crossover international payments. I'm just giving you this random example. Meaning I'm looking at fintech, but within fintech, I think people have a really hard time sending money overseas. And when they send money overseas, it takes three or four days for the money to get there. And it should be instant. I should be able to send money to Africa, to Australia, to America, same day, exactly the same way I would do it if I were to wire somebody uh, locally. And if you think there's a thesis there, then, and you start looking at all the companies that are trying to solve that pain point of international crossover payments, and you make a bet on a company that you think has the best founder with the best product, of course, you don't know if they're going to succeed. But by building the thesis and by speaking to a lot of the competitors and by picking that one, you've suddenly decreased tremendously the percentage of how much luck is a part of, the, of that equation. And I think our job as VCs is to try to bring that luck element as small as possible when taking that decision. When it comes to, to minimizing the overall risk of your investment portfolio, I mean, the global portfolio, do you employ uh, optimization methods to help spread investments across a, a, var a variety of uh, startups or uh, industries? And um, if so, how do you assess this diversification using either mathematical concepts or uh, only your, uh, your guts, let's say? Yeah, so, I mean, as I was saying, I think ultimately you build a diversified venture portfolio but your diversified venture portfolio turns into a concentrated one by the virtue of power law return distribution, right? The game of venture is I'm making 10 bets, 10 companies, five of those companies will die, two will return me the money one time, two companies will basically return me the money between one and a half and two and a half times, and one company will return me the money 10 times. What you need to make sure is you get that one because that one company is returning you the fund. So when we make investments, we use that method of making, I would say, exit calculation and exit scenarios because we're going to say we've made an investment and we think the max exit scenario is going to be 500 million. So it's not going to return us the fund. So we make a lot of binary decisions where we know that it's, we just made an investment recently in a consumer social companies, and basically the company will become a zero or $10 billion company. And we know that. But with our shareholding in that company, if it's a $10 billion company, it's returning the fund multiple times. And we want to continue thinking that way, meaning looking for those, I would say, very outlier binary decisions, because I think those are the ones that, that drive the, the greatest outcomes in the fund. So uh, as we mentioned earlier, it is also essential to note that 
while mathematics is a crucial aspect, um, successful venture capital investing, and especially in early stage uh, investing, as you said, also involves psychological skills. Uh, these skills, as we said, uh, include trust in a founder's ability to manage a company, uh, managing emotions and adapting to uh, changing dynamics at the table. So would you say that the combination of mathematical understanding and psychological acumen makes a well-rounded venture capitalist, or is it something that is more specific to a venture capitalist in series B, C, D, E? Sorry, I missed that question. We're going to have to cut here. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I, I said, as we mentioned earlier, that it, it is essential to have um, uh, a, a mathematical um a mathematical mind in to, to, to be successful in venture capital investing, but um, psychological skills are also uh, fundamental. And as we said, these skills include uh, trust in the founder's ability to manage a company, managing emotions and uh, uh, etc. So would you say that the combination of a mathematical understanding and psychological acumen makes a, a well-rounded venture capitalist? Or is this specific to Uh, venture capitalists in series B, C, D, E, let's say? Yeah, so I think the emotional intelligence is as important as the intellectual intelligence, EQ, what I call EQ and IQ, emotional intelligence versus intelligence. The, you need to have a super high EQ to be a good investor, I think. You have to, which is why sometimes when I'm about to make an investment, I like to ask, kind of like what's driven the person? Why are they building a company? Why are they about to embark on a 10-year journey to build this company? And sometimes when you look really, really deep, you can see people coming from tough backgrounds or people coming from places where they didn't have much or they're frustrated about something. And I think, I mean, that's more on a personal level, but the more I see this like drive and willingness to fight and to be resilient, the more I'm driven and I'm, I want to make that investment. I think it's a crazy job to be an entrepreneur. It's probably the craziest thing ever. And it's not given to everybody to have this kind of toughness to be able to be a successful one. And But you need as an investor to be able to detect those early signals within someone to, to basically decide that this person has what it takes to basically go through Uh, storms and really tough times and down times and mental tough and mental health tough times when things are not going to go well. And on the upside, are they going to be able to ride the wave when things are going to go really well? And for that, you only, you know, only your guts and your experience can tell you by seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of founders seeing who are the successful ones, who are the ones that is most challenging and basically have a ton of data sets. And now over time, I think at Origins, we've seen so many founders that we have a ton of data sets, which enables us to make much more rational decisions. When we look at a founder, we're like, hey, don't you think he, he, he looks or she looks like founder from XYZ company that we backed that became a monster and a million dollar company? And, you know, a, a lot of those patterns, you can find them again and again. So thank you very much for en enlightening the abstract world of uh, mathematics in the venture capital industry. Um, I still have a couple of questions before we, we conclude. Uh, so firstly, is there a particular story that you would like to share with us? For instance, uh, an investment proposal that you declined that turned out to be a, a massive venture? 
So, I mean, our fund is a little bit too young for us to, to, to tell you oh, if, if we have one, you have to come back to me in, in five or seven years uh, <laughs> to know if I had a big miss. You know, venture, venture is, a, is a long game. Our fund is a 10-year fund, which means people invested in 2022. We're going to have to liquidate the fund in 2032. So it's a very long, it's a very long story. But uh, so far, I haven't had any miss. But I'm sure I will have. And in the game of venture, we call that anti-portfolio. Anti-portfolio is when you decline the company, but it became huge. And I don't have antis yet, but I'm sure I will. And uh, and uh, it's it's the game. So uh, I've been meaning to ask you this question since the beginning of the interview, but do you enjoy your job? And I know this question may sound foolish, but I'm sure that seeing uh, that many startups thrive uh, some venture capitalists cherish the dream of one day becoming top founders themselves. <laughs> Do I enjoy the job? I think uh, we are the most blessed people on earth, to be honest. We get to manage other people's money, invest it in really passionate people. We don't do the hard work they do. Sometimes we take the credit and we shouldn't, to be honest. But they do most of the hard work. Uh, we obviously work hard for our shareholders, but our shareholders are the entrepreneurs and the people that invest in the fund, right? We need to return the money and it's our job. But, uh, you know, I think being a general to answer a lot of venture capital want to become entrepreneurs. I think starting a VC fund is also some sort of, of being an entrepreneur. It's you're starting from nothing and then you have to build a brand and you have to get into deals and you have to convince the LPs that you've made the right investments and then you have to wait over time. But then you have a little bit less money to deploy and you need to raise another fund. And I think over time, uh, you get exactly the same satisfaction than it is to, to start a company. I think it's just a little bit less risky than starting a company because of how the system works. Uh, we didn't get into the math, but VCs basically make money in two ways with management fees and performance. And it's a little bit less risky, but I think you have the same thrive and the same, I would say, appetite to win than an entrepreneur. So to conclude, could you give a piece of advice to a young individual who wants to delve deeper into this exciting world? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, who am I to give an advice, but a lot of people, it's a very exclusive world. The game of venture is a very exclusive world where we all know each other pretty much. And from the outside, it seems really, really hard to break in. Try to find kind of like why you want to do it and try to pick, either be a generalist, either be industry driven, either be thesis driven, but pick something and then build upon it, write upon it. Start a podcast, write articles, meet founders of the industry that you want, right? Try to basically, when you go for an interview, to just not be another resume with another cover letter, but you come in with, hey, I've made everything that I've been doing in the crossover international payment because I thought there was something happening there, right? It's so stupid, but it makes such a huge difference. And that, I would say, is, is my first thing. And my second thing is... is uh, My second advice is just believe in yourself. A lot of people will show you down. And 
I think that's what makes a great entrepreneur. That's what makes a great investor. That I think what makes a great human in general is to be able to not listen to the noise and just continue and push through even when it's hard and even when you think it's impossible. And I think if you combine both that depth and that research depth that you could do within an industry and on top of that, you're super resilient and you don't listen to the outside noise, I think there are no reasons that you can become successful at this game. Thank you very much, Solomon, for this discussion. Uh, I know this episode was uh, a bit different than the other ones as it was a bit less mathematical. However, we, we learned a lot about one of today's most exciting industry. Uh, so thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode. Thank you, Stan, for having me. Obviously, we could.